This is us choosing uh, a set of policies that that is the worst of both worlds, that is both deregulatory and um, anti-competitive. And uh, instead, you can do both. This is episode 258 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. This week, Christopher visits with two other policy folk from the Roosevelt Institute, Marshall Steinbaum and Rakeen Maboud. Earlier this year, the Roosevelt Institute released a report that examines how antitrust enforcement has changed and how those changes have impacted the telecommunications industry. Christopher, Marshall, and Rakeen consider how that approach has affected people who may or may not subscribe to Internet access services. You can download the report and learn more about the organization at rooseveltinstitute.org. Now here are Christopher with Marshall Steinbaum and Rakeen Maboud. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm speaking with two folks from the Roosevelt Institute, Marshall Steinbaum, the senior economist and fellow at the Roosevelt Institute. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. And we also have Rakeen Maboud, the program director at Roosevelt Institute. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Nice to be here. I first was aware of you guys several years ago because of uh, some work that Susan Crawford was doing um, with you, I believe. And there was, and I saw what really great work you were doing. And then I read the Crossed Lines report, why the AT&T Time Warner merger demands a new approach to antitrust. And I, I thought it was terrific. I'm excited to talk about these kinds of issues today. Um, but I thought that we'd start maybe by asking and reminding people that it's been 21 years since the Telecommunications Act of 1996. It promised to basically get rid of monopoly and have incredible competition, and we'd all see more investment, lower prices, and generally higher quality services. Uh, what happened? Um, and I think maybe Marshall would be the best person to start off. Yes. Yeah, so I think that that legislation was driven by uh, two major assumptions about uh, the telecommunications sector. And essentially, the problems that we've seen in this area ha- are due to the fact that both of those assumptions turned out to be false when the act went into effect. It did not have the effect that was forecast ex ante. Um, so those two assumptions are that um, if you allow uh, corporations to compete with one another across modes, they will uh, do so lowering prices, increasing variety, uh, increasing innovation, and the benefits of uh, doing that will flow to the consumers. Uh, And secondly, that new technologies would be forthcoming in the field of telecoms uh, such that uh, the old modes of communication would be made obsolete and thus uh, it was less imperative that they be regulated in the public interest in the way that they had been under the 1934 Act. Um, So there was this idea that technological advance was inevitable. Uh, This advance would create new ways of communicating and because we would have those new ways of communicating, um, we didn't need to keep such a vigilant eye on the old ways of communicating. It's actually it's actually really interesting because in some ways, you know, if one or the other had failed, you might have had a, a better environment. But the fact of the first one actually influenced the second one, which is to say that you know, broadband over power lines and satellite, they certainly didn't live up to the hopes of 1996. Um, but some of the wireless technologies probably could have if they were not captured by some of those entities that were should have been competing with them. 
Yes, I completely agree with that. So it's not as though we didn't get new technologies since 1996. Everyone knows that we did. But we had these technologies come in, but they didn't actually um, compete. Instead, they just merged um, and the uh, existing dominant players just sort of extended their footprint into these new sectors. And there was no meaningful sense in which you could kind of get around the monopolized old telecommunications network through the use of some sort of magically competitive new one. Um, I also think that the, the critical issue here is that we implemented this deregulatory regime in, in telecoms that said, well, we're not going to essentially require the uh, equitability and access that we had under the 1934 regime. Um, but we also, at the same time, had a, an uh, antitrust and competition policy um, that was extremely favorable to consolidation. Um, so the whole benefit of deregulation is supposed to be that competition serves the uh, consumer, but what we actually got was not competition, but rather just consolidation and deregulated private monopolies, which is sort of the worst of both worlds. Because you have economists in your title, I want to just make one additional point with relation to this that's a little bit more general, and I'm, I'm curious how you'd react, which is that this seems like policymakers are Charlie Brown and competition is the football that keeps getting pulled away. And, and I would just point to, I believe it was Adam Smith who noted that basically if you put a bunch of people who are in the same trade together in a room, the first thing they talk about is how to restrain trade. And yet with policymakers, it seems like there's this idea that, oh, they just they really want to be in competition with each other. And it seems like a mistake we make over and over again. Yeah, I think that's by design. I mean, I don't think any Charlie Brown kept getting uh, deceived, um, whereas I would these deregulatory policies are uh, implemented knowing that, you know, they're not going to end up. Uh, serving the consumer, even though the ideology says that they will. What you just described that you know, Adam Smith says that when companies or, or um, uh, suppliers get together, they do nothing but uh, conspire against the public interest. Um, that was the view, that was the ideology that the people who promoted the 1996 Act espoused with respect to the old regime, to the 1934 regime. That is what they they, they kind of conjured up this so-called public choice uh, economics where what happened under the 1934 regime was that uh, uh, cozy old AT&T or uh, uh, Ma Bell in the olden days would uh, get together with their friends at the FCC and figure out how to screw over America. Um, and so they had this whole ideology of deregulation that was supposed to do what Adam Smith is saying needs to be done in terms of breaking up um, anti-competitive uh uh, cartels in a regulated industry. And so they kind of took that to the table and said, all right, well, let them compete with each other. Uh, we'll have uh, not just competition between the, the baby bells and what among the, among the baby bells, the baby bells with AT&T and vice versa um, in uh, wireline uh, telephones, but we'll also uh, have that, that co competitive model replicated over again, when we get to these new technologies in, uh, in broadband and in wireless. It, it turns out that there, there was a good reason for the 1934 legislation. In other words, when they tried this deregulatory approach, um, they what actually happened was exactly what you described, the, the, and what Adam Smith said would happen, which is to say that the, the incumbent uh, providers free from oversight from the FCC uh, started getting together and figuring out how they could uh, profit at the public expense.
And I think, Rakeen, maybe you want to come in to tell us a little bit about how this is really impacting people. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to point out that it's important to remember that the massive rise in consolidation after the 96 Telecoms Act had really major implications for digital equity as well. Because the broadband infrastructure is so often built on top of existing infrastructure and there are high fixed costs to building that infrastructure from scratch, low-income communities are often left out, both because they've been left out of previous infrastructure investments, what we call digital redlining, and because market concentration essentially incentivizes ISPs to provide service only to areas where they can make a profit. So low-income communities, and I should say here that income is highly correlated with race, which is important, are much less likely to be able to pay these high prices. Plus, extremely concentrated markets like telecoms provide a high barrier to entry for new market entrants. So the competition could drive down prices, increase innovation, and provide incentives for broadband provision to low-income areas. It's really hard to achieve that in this kind of market environment. Um, And this type of market consolidation makes the conditions ripe for discrimination by large telecoms providers, which is actually exactly what happened in the 1990s. So, Rakeen, I I think, you know, it's an interesting question. If we had the kind of market competition that was envisioned and and might be possible, um, do you think that that would uh, lead to better options for low-income folks or just more rigorous competition for middle-income and higher-income families? I do think that it would improve things from an equity lens. Increased competition would essentially do a lot of the things that consolidation stifles, right? These mega firms don't have any incentive to innovate, for example, because they have such a stranglehold on their respective markets. Innovation is really important from an equity standpoint because it means finding cheaper and more efficient ways to deliver good services, which in terms opens up markets because lower costs mean that more people will be able to afford the service. And in turn, previously unprofitable markets would become more profitable for service providers. At the end of the day, monopolized private providers are only going to care about serving the highest margin consumers, and that's historically been the case. So if we had all infrastructure, internet infrastructure in private hands, it would cost a lot of money. Um, and not be even be available to disadvantaged communities. And the whole idea of behind deregulation suggests that every community can get the level of service it wants, um, assuming that companies will offer fast and expensive services to those willing to pay a lot and slower and cheaper services for those willing to pay less. But more often than not, it's slow and expensive services provided to the rich and nothing for everyone else. So a more competitive system really would expand the types of people who have access to services, but also improve the quality. So I I just imagine uh, the cable lobbyist response to this, and I'll direct this to you, Marshall, would be, look, we've invested trillions of dollars, billions of dollars, whatever they want to say. Speeds have never been higher than they are now. AT&T will say there's more than 100 communities in which if you live at the right address, you could get fiber. Um, There are people who have choices. Um, You know, what, what exactly have we not received because of the consolidation? I think Europe offers the most obvious kind of um, alternative history for what we could have had in uh, the United States, Uh, not to say that their uh, telecoms regulatory or competition policy regime is perfect, but um, they uh, have many more options available to consumers at all income levels. Um, Essentially, all of those options are better than all of the options that are available here. Um, And the sort of mythology that Rakeen just referred to that deregulation is good because everyone gets what they what they want uh, just simply hasn't been 
borne out uh, here. And, um, you know, Europe has, first of all, a much more stringent uh, set of uh, guidelines that prevent the full consolidation in each of the modes uh, that we've had in this country that that's from a sort of antitrust and competition policy perspective. Um, and secondly, they just have much stronger regulatory mandates on companies to provide uh, free and equal service at a high quality to uh, customer bases in some in some degree, regardless of abil- ability to pay. Um, so what they have done is kind of retained the flavor of the 1934 regime that was started to be undone by the um, the antitrust case against Ma Bell here in the early 80s. Um, you know they are are operating at full tilt a telecommunications network where in effect the rich are subsidizing the poor through a, a pooling equilibrium to use the economics jargon um, and we decided not to do that anymore in this country and I think Europe shows that it can be done with the same if not better uh, innovation the same uh, if not better service uh, it's not like they're laboring in the medieval past at, at the way that uh, the, those same lobbyists you referred to uh, would say you know we we've invested and you know had we not uh, gotten the profits associated with that investment then the US telecommunications infrastructure would be uh, much much less dense than it than it is when with lower service we know for a fact it isn't true <laughs> right <laughs> many areas um would love to have the investment that a few cities have at this point so we obviously see a great disparity across communities one of the one of the things we've seen and there's there's good arguments that one would one may want to have net neutrality legislation and requirements uh, even if you had robust competition. But when you don't have robust competition, it seems all the more important. Um, yeah. But uh, but I think you know some of the issues around net neutrality, which um, I, I suspect almost everyone who's listening understands, it's just um, the idea that your ISP shouldn't be able to overly influence you or tell you how to use the internet more or less. Um, but uh, I'm curious. I think there's some some deeper issues that don't always get discussed unless you're reading all of the personal writings on Harold Feld's blog or, or something like that. So, you know, Marshall, I'm wondering if you can um, give us a sense of something we should be looking at uh, re- with regard to some of the things that are happening around net neutrality right now. Right. So I imagine that your uh, listeners won't be surprised to hear that uh, Ajit Pai has been up to some nefarious dealings uh, in his current position. Yes, FCC Chairman Pai is, um, you know, has has long been kind of a foe of of our way of thinking, and uh, <laughs> we're quite concerned with him. <laughs> um, and I think what's striking about what's happened since he became the chairman is. Um, the sort of surgical precision by which he has operated the different levers of the federal bureaucracy in such a way that it benefits his old uh, friends and colleagues at Verizon and their peers. Um, so, in particular, uh, you know, he's as we know, he is dismantling the, the set of policies referred to as net neutrality. Um, and one of the ways that that is going to be done is by removing the uh, market participants recourse to complain about unequal discri- uh, treatment and discrimination from the FCC and its various mechanisms for adjudicating common carriage uh, to the FTC. Um, so the Federal Trade Commission has a, a consumer protection and antitrust and competition uh, mandate. That's what it does. It is not sector specific like the FCC. Um, but what is quite true about the FTC is that it only 
uh, really cares about what it calls consumer welfare or consumer surplus. Um, its job, if it has any job, is to serve uh, consumers. I mean, hopefully they're at least doing that. But uh, net neutrality and uh, the issues that arise uh, therefrom are just inherently not solely a consumer-facing issue. If an upstream content provider feels it's being discriminated against by an uh, internet service provider or by, by a distributor of, uh, in any one of the telecoms modes, in order to win a case or, or win some sort of proceeding before the Federal Trade Commission, um, they have to somehow show that consumers are actually being harmed. And that is just hard to do. It would be like saying, you know, I, I'm Netflix, say, and I'm being kind of held up and forced to pay through the nose by an internet service provider. Um, you know, I have to say that the real uh, person, the real entity being harmed here is consumers. Um, and that's possible. It's certainly uh, the case that consumers can be harmed by uh, upstream discrimination. Uh, but the point is that upstream content providers have, they, they have rights under the communications regulations um, that go beyond whether discrimination and unfair treatment harm consumers. Uh, under the old way of doing things, uh, under the Section 2 of the 1934 Act, and as as extended by the prior administration at the FCC, the content providers can go to the F FCC and say, you know, I've been discriminated against, that's not fair, and stop there. And they don't have to prove any claims about the impact on consumers. So this sort of bureaucratic uh, wrangling where you take this whole function and move it from the agency where the plaintiffs, so to speak, get a hearing um, to the agency that is structurally uh, uh, reluctant to grant a hearing to uh, upstream content providers of various kinds, um, you're just automatically weakening the common carriage principles that underlie net neutrality. I think one of the things to be concerned about is not necessarily where Chairman Pai is going right now, but if we see this administration continuing to basically uh, be so unpopular, um, and we see this issue of net neutrality at the FCC also sh showing so much resistance of the public and businesses to changing the regime, I think one of the things we fear is that Congress may come in. And there, again, we may see uh, Republicans in Congress striking a deal in which they're trying to push this to the FTC as well. Is that, is that something that you'd be afraid of? Yes, uh, there's a couple of different FTC process reform bills. Um, I, I'm not aware of like draft legislation that does that, but it may exist. I, I certainly don't have a complete knowledge of what's going on in Congress in this area. But I think your general concern that either if the administration doesn't think it can get what it wants through the purely administrative procedures, or I think you know it's pretty clear that uh, that Chairman Pai uh, is you know serving the interests of an outside master, so to speak. Um, if they don't feel like they can get what they need just solely through um, administrative functions, then they will bring the matter to legislation. Um, and you know, given what happened in 1996, I would fear what that might bring about in terms of Congress, because these companies have they they have lots of influence on, on both sides of the aisle and in Congress. Um, on the other hand, I think it is fair to say that the sort of very strong ideology that powered the 1996 Act um, has tempered to some degree uh, in Congress. And so you're not going to get the sort of one-sided hearing that went down in 1996. On the other hand, of course, that was a kind of strongly bipartisan legislation, um, whereas, you know, given that one party controls all of Congress right now, um, you could see a much more partisan thing playing out wh where the ultimate policy outcome is uh, just as bad as, uh, if, if not substantially worse, than what happened in 96. 
Rakeen, one of the things that, that we come back to at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance is kind of watching the horror show at the federal level and then trying to figure out what we can do about it at the local level. And um, and I think you've been looking at a project that we recently discussed with uh, Joshua Breitbart in New York City uh, about Queensbridge and a large uh, low-income housing development. Um, what's going on there? So as many of your listeners probably already know, there are lots of municipalities getting around the federal policy landscape, experimenting with different models of municipal broadband. Um, So one model that I just want to throw out there is the model in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where the city has established a municipal utility that provides a high-speed, low-cost broadband for all the city's residents, and it subsidizes it for lower-income people. Um, And then another is the Queensbridge project, which you just mentioned. This is a demonstration project in New York City, and my team at Roosevelt is currently writing a case study on it with Maya Wiley, who um, is the former counsel to the mayor and actually currently a faculty member at the new school. And just a wonderful person. She's great. She's super sharp. So the Queensridge Project, just to give a quick overview, provides a free and extremely fast internet to the residents of the Queensbridge houses, which is actually the largest public housing development in all of North America. Um, And in the case of the Queensbridge Project, the city contracts with an outside ISP, but owns and maintains all the physical infrastructure. So I think there are two interesting things here. First, Queensbridge provides a vision for what municipal broadband could look like in the future. This is a service that's treated like a utility, provided by the government, and it's free. Second, I brought up Chattanooga because I think both Chattanooga and Queensbridge provide different models of municipalities experimenting with elements of a public option. And I think both models have their merits. In many ways, the Queensbridge model prioritizes equity because the folks working in City Hall at the time, such as Maya and Josh, realize that even a cheap plan, say $9.99 a month, is 10 bucks that could be better spent on food, clothes, or other necessities. The Queensbridge plan really does prioritize providing internet to the people who are most marginalized from the broader telecom industry. Chattanooga, in a lot of ways, is more of a traditional public option. It doesn't provide free services to anyone, even though there are subsidies for lower-income consumers. You know, I think it's worth noting, and I don't know that the utility would provide a free option if they were able to, but uh, Tennessee law does appear to prohibit them from offering a service at below the right. cost of providing it. So that's actually one of the reasons why, even though Chattanooga has done everything it can to provide a low-income service, uh, paradoxically, the state is actually prohibiting them from doing a better job of serving low-income folks. Right. And this is kind of a worrisome trend because we see states across the country imposing these state preemption laws, which restricts what municipalities can provide in terms of services. It seems to be on the rise that states more and more are are keeping municipalities from offering these services in a really robust way to their citizens. I think I think we're certainly worried about it more. I mean, we're more worried about it now than we have been in the future. But it is worth noting that um, local groups have been able to stop most of the efforts to establish these. So though we're having more fights now, um, we've mostly seen local groups stopping these efforts. Um, so that's been terrific. Yes, absolutely. And I'm excited to see that there's this increase in municipal experimentation. And I I really am looking forward to seeing where this goes, both with Queensbridge and New York City, but also all of these other municipalities around the country. One of the things that that I think separates Queensbridge from Chattanooga, uh, aside from a bunch of obvious things, is that 
Chattanooga built the network using an economic model that presupposed the, ne- the network would pay for itself out of revenues for the network. Now, the Queensbridge model is fundamentally different. And I'm, I'm just curious if you have a sense of, as you think about this, you know, um, one of the things that worries me is that um, the, the Queensbridge, in theory, could disappear with a different mayor, I suppose. Um, you know, what can we do to make sure that, that we're making investments that are going to be there for the long haul? Yeah, this is something that has been really interesting in digging into this project. This question of how do you institutionalize these priorities is a big one that's come up over and over again. Um, Certainly in the case of Queensbridge, they did, Maya Wiley ended up securing a 10-year capital budget um, line. So there is kind of a 10-year secured funding source for Queensbridge and all of the projects that come out of the Queensbridge demonstration project. That being said, I I share your concerns. You have to look out for political waves and and whether or not, you know, projects like this will be able to withstand them. My admiration for for Maya grows because um, the the 10-year funding is certainly um it's very smart. Um Marshall, let me throw it back to you for any concluding comments on on these issues. I think, you know, we know how to do telecoms policy right because we used to do it right. The problem that has uh, arisen, depending on how far back you want to go, whether to 96 or to 82 or um, potentially even to the the 70s, um, is that we had an ideological revolution that said everything that we thought we knew about how to conduct sound telecommunications policy uh, was wrong and, you know, we needed to have a a huge shakeup that that jettisoned all the principles that we had from the 1934 Act. Um, And I think now after 30 or 40 years, we just know that that was one uh, big failure, tour of uh, disastrous policymaking. There's no reason to think that the same principles that led us to the 1934 would uh, would fail again. I mean, we sort of have lost the capacity for um, f- certainly for ambitious antitrust and competition policy, and also for you know pu- uh, public serving regulation in the in the public interest. Um, and part of that will always include a public option that provides for a competitive alternative and a low cost alternative that reaches um, all households and connects them to uh, economic economic networks that are necessary for being an economic person in the modern era. Um, So all of those principles were true in 1934, and they're still true now, and we don't need to uh, continue to allow the fact that we had uh, bad policymaking for 30 years set the parameters uh, for the future. Uh, We can do a lot better. So just a, a, a quick clarification. Um, I think some people might have just simplified their thinking uh, about this and think, well, the, the previous policy was one of basically allowing a monopoly, whereas you are promoting an antitrust. So just square that circle for me, please. Right. So I, I say both. So to, to characterize the kind of debate here, this is a simplification, but I think it's basically right. Um, you know, we had one big regulated monopoly doing doing telephone communications or and uh, in the other uh, it was it was different in in broadcast but um you know more or less the idea was you had these large monopolies that served the entire country and they had a mandate to to provide uh equal quality services to everyone where they were allowed to 
uh, charge more to the people that had a high ability to pay in order to subsidize services to people with a lower ability to pay. When Ma Bell was broken up in the early 80s, um, the, the ideology of that was let's bust up this highly inefficient monopoly using antitrust. So whereas you know, altogether the, the policy revolution that took place in the 1980s wanted antitrust to be uh, very inactive, to not get in the way of corporations that wanted to merge, uh, they did use it to go after Ma Bell and uh, supposedly introduce competition into this previously highly regulated sector. And what that did was uh, kill off, again, the, the what an economist would call a pooling equilibrium by a strategy of cream skimming. So you had uh, upstarts come in, poach the uh, most profitable cu- customers away from the smaller AT&T that came out of the 1982 restructuring, or 80, I guess 84 was when it was uh, finally implemented. Um, it made it impossible for the new AT&T to really function and and serve in its regula- regulated capacity. They were losing all of their most profitable customers to these upstarts that were uh, that led us to, 19, to the 1996 Act, where, as I said, the whole idea was lift these regulatory mandates off of uh, AT&T and other um, incumbent providers, um, let them all compete with each other. We had these regulatory mandates. We also had walls around um, the baby bells that protected their uh, geographic coverage from competition. Um, and and the idea was, you know, we have these, these issues in the sector stemming from the breakup uh, of Ma Bell. Uh, let's uh, kind of solve those issues by uh, injecting yet more competition. Uh, regulation came off um, and we got all of the the catalog of troubles that uh, we previously discussed. Um, so the question is sort of where do we go from here? Um, you know, I have said that the reason why the 1996 Act failed was because of lax antitrust policy. We thought these companies were going to compete with each other once they were deregulated and instead they just merged with each other. Um, and so the whole promise of competition didn't work because uh, of that lax antitrust policy. Uh, you know, Europe uh, is the the model here, um, and the s- reasons that the incumbent providers have put forward for why they can't do that here just are laughable to my to my mind. I mean, this is us choosing uh, a set of policies that that is the worst of both worlds. That is both deregulatory and um, anti-competitive. Should uh, either an administration or Congress want to serve the public interest in this area, um, it is eminently technologically and uh, feasible and, and, it, and it could be constructed as a policy. We just have chosen not to do it. I think that's a really good summary. Well, thank you both. And I'm, I'm excited to see what comes next from the Roosevelt Institute as you continue uh, trying to make sure that we're not being abused by both a lack of competition and a lack of regulation. That was Christopher with Marshall Steinbaum and Rakeem Maboud from the Roosevelt Institute discussing antitrust enforcement and how it has affected telecommunications policy. We have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and all of the podcasts in the ILSR family on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research by also subscribing to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. Thank you to Arnie Husby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle licensed through Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 258 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Podcast.